I've always been staggered to consider that less than 3% of total philanthropic giving is directed at the mother of all problems. And I'm particularly disappointed by it when you consider how rewarding giving money on a philanthropic basis to environmental organisations can be. It really is rocket fuel. Hello and welcome to Sustain This with Vivo Barefoot. Our guest today is Ben Goldsmith, a long-time environmental campaigner and green investor. Welcome, Ben. Thank you very much for having me. A lot of people who are listening to this probably won't know who you are. So let's start there. Who are you? What do you do? And why are you so passionate about environmental action? So I've been a passionate nature lover since I can remember. At the age of three, four, five years old, my greatest interests were creating little ponds in the garden where I grew up, going out at crack of dawn with my older brother to look for badgers playing in the park next to my mother's garden. I've been deeply fascinated with nature all my life. And I think if you have that kind of a love for the natural world, right at the core of who you are, you can't help but have noticed that the natural fabric of our country and of the world has become very, very depleted over time. And that's why I'm an environmentalist. If you love nature, you can't help but want to do something to reverse that trend. Yeah, absolutely. I'm the same. So I I grew up in Australia and I remember putting my feet in the sand as a kid and wondering why there was oil there. I have these huge ambitions for change in the world of business and, and sustainability, but at the same time, I think I'd really settle for going to my local park and there not being rubbish everywhere. I know it sounds like such a crazy thing, but I think our ambitions sometimes in environmental action is so high, but then just the small things that perhaps you and I witnessed growing up that made us love about nature in the first place seem to be missing more so now than ever. Yeah, I think that's right. People talk about a phenomenon called shifting baselines. What that describes is a phenomenon whereby we yearn for how it was when we were young, but when we were young, things were already pretty depleted and we have no real feel, therefore, for the losses that have taken place over a longer period of time. The world today would be unrecognisable to to our grandparents or our great-grandparents. We've lost so much. That's why I think people are drawn to the topic of rewilding, because it gives, for the first time, some kind of hope that we can reverse those losses and that we can build things back better than they've been for a very, very long time. I think that's really the thing that excites and interests me most right now, is this idea of restoring nature on a grand scale, of really feeding that ambition. From a professional perspective, I'm a green investor. That's my day job. I created a business in 2005 called WHEB Web, which is one of London's leading sustainability-focused equity firms. And in 2014, I I stepped out of Web and set up a new business called Manhattan, which is a fish, incidentally, in the Atlantic, which invests along the same lines. And the focus is on what you might describe as the green industrial revolution. I feel that the world is undergoing a profound change in the way we use resources of all kinds. Businesses across industrial sectors, often simply for the reason of trying to save money, are looking for ways in which they can use energy, water, raw materials much more efficiently and and thereby reduce their footprint on on the natural world. I, I was asked a question yesterday, is it right that more and more brands are occupying the space and producing more product when actually the world can't produce that or take that anymore. And even if it does have a sustainability label and it is slightly more efficient or slightly more environmentally friendly, actually is what we need to do to shift gears and, and to start actually, you know, degrowing the economy or perhaps kind of 
having a way to to do business to develop and and to make things that's net positive on the environment I, i think the tools already exist i think it's the rate of adoption that is the challenge the throwaway culture the kind of linear model of consumption is a disaster for the natural world the, the, the circular model of producing and consuming and reusing things exists lighting companies now instead of selling lights which run out get thrown away and then replaced and which burn a lot of power along the way are now switching to selling lumens where a company or a highways agency will say please light this stretch of road or light this building for us and we'll pay you for those lumens and suddenly the whole emphasis is on lights which use power as efficiently as possible and which last for as long as possible and can be reused at the end and that circular model can apply to almost any form of consumption really and i think that, that that's just one example of a tool that we have that we just need to adopt more rapidly i feel like the economic tailwinds are with us on a lot of this stuff look at renewables you know, 10 15 years ago when i first started investing solar power wind were considered something of a joke in economic terms they'd never compete with fossil fuels well we'll look today solar is now demonstrably the cheapest source of power for two thirds of the world's population and the price continues to fall at a staggering rate up to 10% a year the same is true of wind denmark generating all of its power from wind the uk more than a third of its power now comes from wind and we've gone two months now without burning coal even once as a nation the first industrialized nation to use coal to generate power is now the first no longer to use coal This is one of the few areas where I feel most hopeful but then I don't know if you recently saw the I can't remember what his name is but he's the guy who did bowling for Columbine Oh, Michael Moore. Yeah, did you see the documentary he recently released? I didn't. I've read about it and he's drawn a lot of criticism for that. I think if you speak to professional infrastructure investors in the city of London at KKR and Blackstone and TPG or go and speak to the big infrastructure bankers in Macquarie and Goldman Sachs, they will tell you the opposite that you really don't want to be competing now against solar in most of the world. And that's why new coal is really not getting built unless it's heavily subsidized by governments or unless you live in Australia. Well, unless you live in Australia, whether there is a structural support system for coal, um, and that's a policy decision. That that's not an economic, a rational economic decision. So I think that if if you take the great industrial economic challenges in respect of the natural environment, I think that there's reason for hope. The circular economy just makes better sense. Renewables make sense from an economic perspective, from a resilience perspective, and the adoption rates are accelerating each year. I think the electrification of transport is following a similar trajectory. And if we move into a world of autonomous vehicles, the, the only ship of vehicles by individuals will plummet and we'll end up seeing a circular economy in transportation as well. I think if you look at smart cities, initiatives like the C40 which brings together the world's largest cities, more than 40 now, for collaboration, shared procurement and so on in respect to the development of smart cities, it's happening and it's happening faster and faster. So I think there is cause for optimism and I think investors have a really important role to play. My brother and I supported the CDP initiative a long time ago. That organization collates data on emissions and emissions reductions plans on behalf of the world's largest investors from the world's largest companies. And the data is then published through Bloomberg and it provides investors with the ammunition they need to harangue the companies in their portfolio to up their game. And more than 80% of companies in the world are now reporting the vast majority now have credible emissions reductions plans. And so investors have a huge role to play. Shareholder resolutions on emissions reductions plans are becoming more and more commonplace. So, given that actually the future we need needs to be much more than carbon, which many would also argue is is fairly mature in its space, how do you feel that rewilding fits into this? And and you've actually called it wilder farming, right? In an effort to perhaps be a little bit more PC with the more conservative agricultural community. And do you feel like it can go down that pathway of being something that can be quantified? 
and therefore valued and therefore as an exciting investment as perhaps carbon emissions or GHG emissions in that space. So in in respect of the climate problem, which is bearing down on us very fast, Mm. let's just say that I'm right and we do manage in the right period of time to decarbonize power generation, decarbonize industry, which is more of a challenge, but but starting to happen, that we all live in smart cities and electrification of transport becomes the norm. Even if we do it all and we slash our emissions in line with the Paris deal, if we don't heal nature as well, in my view, we're toast. That's the other side of the coin. And perhaps until recently, that's been the neglected side of the coin. It's not going to be good enough to decarbonize our activities. We really have to find ways to restore the natural fabric of the world. In a British context, I figure that this government right now is the first that we've had in my lifetime that it seems to be serious about doing that. And I've been lucky enough to sit on the board of the Department for Environment, Food and Rural Affairs. And we have three flagship pieces of legislation coming before Parliament right now. The Agriculture Bill, the Environment Bill and a Fisheries Bill. And each of those, if done right, will represent the biggest wins for the natural environment in this country that, that we've ever seen. I'm familiar with Rewilding Britain. We've worked with them before. And am I right in saying that they're going to integrate some of this into the new legislation. Whether you voted leave or remain in in the the, the EU referendum 2016, I think there's one thing on, on, on which everyone can agree, and that is that the European Union's common agriculture policy has been a disaster for the natural environment over the last 40 years. The way it's worked is this. You are paid a subsidy, amounting in total, by the way, to 55 billion euros a year across Europe and about three billion pounds in the UK alone each year, based solely on the amount of land that you farm, with really very little in the way of conditions attached. And and that system of subsidies has created an incentive to farm every square inch. So that little marshy patch at the bottom of your farm, which is great for butterflies, well, if you don't plough it up, you don't get your subsidy. You want to leave a strip of 30 yards, a buffer alongside the river that flows through your land? Well, fine, great, but you're going to lose the subsidy from that patch of land. So the incentive across Europe under the cap has been to farm every square inch, no matter how suitable for farming. So now that we're leaving the European Union, that system under plans laid out in the Agriculture Bill, which is currently passing through Parliament, will be completely replaced over a seven-year transition period with a system that's described by Michael Gove, who invented it, the former Agriculture and Environment Minister, as public money for public good. You'll only receive payments from the state as a land manager to the extent you are delivering public environmental good. And the technical term is ELMS, which stands for Environmental Land Management Scheme. There will be a list of 70 or 80 things that you can do on your land for which you will be paid by the taxpayer. So for example, that might be allowing nature to recover on the steep slopes if you farm somewhere in the hills and you'll be paid for helping to mitigate flooding helping to mitigate drought and regulate the hydrological cycle everyone knows that hills which have nature on them act as a sponge they absorb rainfall and they release it slowly throughout the year and if you strip nature from the hills which is exactly what we've done across britain you get a cycle of flash flooding in the winter and drought in the summer it's basic hydrology under the new system farmers will be paid directly for reversing that trend and that's just one of a number of things that'll be that'll be included in the new scheme. So I I think the agriculture bill will usher in the biggest win for nature that that we've ever experienced because 75% of our land is farmed. And I think that farming will therefore bifurcate and you'll have two kinds of farming. I think that on on the 20, 25% of Britain that produces the vast majority of the food we produce, 80, 85% of the food we produce, food production will remain the priority. But the new system will incentivize farmers to switch to regenerative approaches. So intensive farming, but done much better. 
rotational regenerative farming, which rebuilds the soil, which doesn't represent an ongoing war against nature, but seeks to work with nature. Farming, which draws the best knowledge and the best ideas from biodynamic, organic and conventional farming and blends them with modern technologies such as satellite imagery and drones and integrated pest management, no-till, arable, for example. And I think that what we'll see in those productive parts of the country, which are predominantly in the east, Cambridgeshire, Lincolnshire, the, the really good flatland arable landscapes, is we'll see increased production with a much lighter footprint on the natural environment. As in the Seven re- years is quite an ambitious time frame as well, too, for such huge policy change. How does it fit in with what you're doing in terms of the grassroots organisations like the Devon Environmental Fund, which Vivo Barefoot's going to be a co-founder on? So places like Devon, and, and in fact the majority of this island in which we live, are not suited to intensive farming. It's not economic to try to extract vast production from the hilly, gentle landscape of Devon or from the Lake District or from the Pennines or from most of the western half of England. And the new scheme, therefore, will usher in a new way of farming those landscapes. And I've described that in in an article recently as wilder farming, as opposed to rewilding. My view is that we need farming in these landscapes. Farming is the backbone of society. It's a cultural backbone of of our country. It's the opposite of intensive farming. It's working with the land, yeah? Exactly. The new scheme, I think, will reward farmers in those places for delivering environmental goods and services in the form of flood mitigation, carbon sequestration, the return of nature across great swathes of the British landscape and the recreation of natural resilience in our country. And so natural... Uh, regeneration will be the priority in these landscapes and food production will be something of a byproduct. And you still need the food production. Without cattle, a landscape like Dartmoor will revert to a dark closed canopy forest, which isn't actually that biodiverse and that rich. We, we fetishize ancient woodland in this country, but in fact, ancient woodland is not nearly as rich as a kind of open wooded mosaic, which is sculpted by cattle. There are four keystone species in the British landscape. Imagine a medieval bridge with four arches. Under each arch is a keystone. If you pull the keystone out, the arch collapses. The cattle is one of those keystone because it maintains this open mosaic landscape, a kind of open wood pasture of the kind that would have blanketed Britain three, four hundred years ago before the arrival of sheep in very large numbers. The second is the pig or its ancestor, the wild boar, which is really nature's gardener. It turns over the soil, it opens up the ground and, and lots of annual wildflowers, lots of trees can only germinate on freshly turned soil and lots of songbirds rely on freshly turned soil for food. The third keystone is the beaver which holds water back in the landscape through its damming activities and the fourth is the wolf and I think it's ambitious to expect a return of wolves certainly to England anytime soon but man can play the role of wolf. In in due course of course we should have wolves back. One of the most motivational videos I ever watched in my life is how they they brought the wolves back to Yellowstone. I'm sure you're familiar with the video but it's just such a wonderful story and inspiration for those of us that actually think in systems it's a kind of constant struggle for someone who works within particularly the fashion industry which is so reductive in the way it wants to communicate to be a systems thinker and yeah. to think holistically about things so what we need the new scheme to do is is to incentivize farmers to recreate through their farming those fundamental processes yeah and that's what i think we'll see happening across great swathes of britain so if that's the policy approach right which is now starting to align itself with the environmental activists that perhaps have been a little bit more ahead of it what What's the deal in terms of 
green investment and probably don't like the word, but philanthropy. I mean, there was a figure that came out a couple of years ago in a Tatler article that you were in that said philanthropic investment at the time, less than 3% of it was towards environmental initiatives. Do you feel like A, that's changed? B, does it need to change now with the current context and what that change looks like for you? I've always been staggered to consider that less than 3% of total philanthropic giving is directed at the mother of all problems. And I'm particularly disappointed by it when you consider how rewarding giving money on a philanthropic basis to environmental organizations can be. It really is rocket fuel. It's possible to move mountains in this field with relatively small amounts of money. If you want to build a hospital, brick by brick, machine by machine, you're going to spend millions and millions of dollars getting that done. Whereas if you want to win a policy change on the natural environment, or you want to change the way a landscape is managed, or you want to achieve a new marine protected area or a ban on single-use plastics in a particular political zone, relatively small amounts of money can, can make that happen if you put it in the right hands. I mean, Greenpeace and a coalition of organizations in the 1970s managed to save the whales globally. With a tiny shoestring budget, they managed to catalyze a global societal movement that culminated in the establishment of the International Whaling Commission and a total ban on the harvesting of large whales. It's astonishing what you can do with relatively modest sums of money. And I think the reason why people don't give to environmental causes is because they're slightly baffled by them. They're abstract to their lives. If you take take my mum, for example, my mum cares about the environment. Of course she does. But if I talk to her about the destruction of the rainforests in far-off countries or the changing nature of the climate as a result of our activities or the collapse of fish stocks... in the ocean, these problems are very abstract and she wonders whether she can make a difference. She'd much rather fund local school kids collecting litter in Richmond Park where she lives or, or support a local food initiative in those local schools. And so what we're trying to do with the Conservation Collective, which is a charity that I founded and chair and which is managed by brilliant Jade Brudnell, who's executive director, is to set up local philanthropic funds focused on environmental work. And we've established 10 so far. Devon is in fact our 11th. And what they do is bring together people who have a strong emotional or familial connection with a particular place and bring them together for the purpose of providing financial support to the best local initiatives in that place. And and what we found in each in each place where we've established one of these funds is that they're everywhere. People who are devoting their free time, their evenings, their weekends on no budget or a shoestring budget to trying to win their particular passion battle. And if you give them a little bit of money, it turbocharges their work. They're able to print some leaflets. They're able to hire in a technical advisor or a legal advisor. They're able to take some time out of work and go and travel to the capital and lobby politicians. They're able to rabble rouse locally. And you can unlock some extraordinary victories with relatively modest sums of money. We've also discovered that it's a really neat way of persuading people to support environmental work Mm -hmm. because human beings are centrally place-based organizations. We love the place in which we live. We love the place in which we grew up or in which we raised our family and we want to make it better. We want to make it greener. So these locally focused environmental funds we've found are a very good way to motivate people to put their hand in their pocket and support the best campaigners and conservationists around where they live. That's so wonderful. It's, it's one of the things that our co-founders, Galahad and Asher, they say all the time, it's about reconnecting with nature. And actually the whole fundamental premise of Vivo Barefoot Footwear, coming back to one of the points you made earlier around selling lumens, not light bulbs, is that we essentially sell health. What we do is make the senses in your foot connect back with nature. And I think that you can only learn to care for it once you love it.
I was down in Devon last week and I swam around the Jurassic coastline and, and scraped all my legs up on the rocks and I got out and I couldn't have been smiling larger. It was just such a wonderful experience to just feel so connected with nature again after three months in lockdown. Even Rewilding Britain's doing an initiative in Scotland at the moment where they're literally taking buses of people out into the regenerated land and just getting them out there, planting trees, filling the ground and I think there's so much power in that. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I, th I think this COVID crisis has highlighted two things. It's highlighted for a lot of people quite how important healthy, abundant, rich nature is to their lives, to their physical and their spiritual well-being. And I think it's also highlighted the iniquity that we have in this country in respect of access to nature. There were those who could access nature and go walking in the spring, which was especially vivid this year, and, and, and hear the birdsong and see the wildflowers popping open. And there were those who, who simply did not have that access. I think that that's got to be a really important important part of this government's recovery plans is, is to bring nature into people's lives in a big way. I'm hoping that the, the National Tree Strategy, which is currently under consultation, is going to focus on that. Restoring nature, rewilding corridors of nature through our cities, through our populated spaces, in the Greenbelt. I mean, who's visited the Greenbelt in London? Golf courses and sugar beet farms. There's not much nature there. And there are millions of people that need it. It's, it's central to, to their well-being. Totally, totally. So I think that this crisis, in fact, for that reason, is going to be the first where the recovery really does have nature yeah. at its heart. I, I really desperately want to believe that and I can feel the energy that's not a guide of whether or not it's going to be successful but I think that we've had more noise around this than ever before I'm going to leave Australia out of the debate here because I quite frankly think they're going in the opposite direction but I think in the UK at least there's so much going on right now and so much discussion was had during lockdown around what that green recovery looks like that I think that we have the right gears in place now Yes, exactly. And these three bills that I mentioned at the start of our conversation, the Agriculture Bill, the Environment Bill, which is a comprehensive environmental legislative framework, perhaps the best in the world, and the Fisheries Bill, if we get it right, they lay out a roadmap for the government and for others to start investing meaningfully for the first time in nature recovery. I remember when all the Brexit debates were happening three, four years ago, and it was just starting to occur. And I have a close friend who works in the fisheries part of the environmental organization. And she was quietly kind of ringing me and being like, I'm actually really hopeful because this means we can rewrite the legislation and it's really bad right now. And actually, we have a really great opportunity here. Exactly. We can debate till the cows come home, the rights and wrongs of Brexit. And there's a huge strength of opinion on both sides. This is the one area where a lot of people can agree. And that is that changing the way we subsidize agriculture changing yeah. the way we manage our fish stocks, which have all but disappeared under the European Union's common fisheries policy. Absolutely. On that note, let's wrap up then. So I always leave the podcast on what is your hope for a regenerative future? And I think basically we're retiring the word sustainability. We just don't think that sustaining the current norm is good enough. And so uh, we're moving into regeneration. For me, it's this wonderful kind of wild plants have grown over buildings and nature's taken back, but we still live here and we connect with the plants and the animals and we have this wonderful spiritual respect it's really idealistic but that's what gets me up in the morning what is it for you so I think you're right. I think at the heart of a future in which I want to live, people have rediscovered their fundamental spiritual connection with the natural world. Without that, it's going to be very hard to deliver the kinds of change that we need to see. And I think that the COVID crisis has, has moved people in that direction. I think that we need to see nature in every corner of our lives. We need great corridors of natural habitat running through our cities, through our suburbs, length and breadth of our country. We need agriculture either to be wilder in those places where intensive farming doesn't work 
work. And where it does, we need regenerative rotational approaches that draw upon thousands of years of knowledge to produce food that feeds us in a way that doesn't pillage the natural world and ruin the prospects of the next generation to produce food. And we need to connect up our landscape in the form of wildlife bridges over our roads. We need to break apart the concrete structures which have impeded the flow of our rivers, the dams, the dikes, the weirs. They number in, in the tens of thousands, completely straightjacketed our rivers. So that is a kind of a, a complete re-becoming of the natural world in this country. And, and, and with it, I want to see the net zero stuff happen. I want us to move to 100% renewables, to electrified transport. I want every home in the country to be well insulated. I want our heavy industries to be zero carbon. And I feel like on that latter category of topics, we're making more progress than on the former. So now's the time to fight for nature. You're really walking the talk as well because you're doing that already with your property, aren't you? My home is a former dairy farm in Somerset, a couple of hundred acres, and we are fully rewilding in the NEP sense of the word. So we've been ripping out during lockdown miles of barbed wire fencing, layer upon layer of barbed wire fencing, enormously satisfying, opening up the landscape. We, we've we've taken the grazing animals out for the time being, and in four or five years' time, when the, the patches of scrub and young trees have started to regenerate through the fields, we'll bring back a herd of longhorn cattle and start producing beef. But the business here is going to revolve around environmental goods and services first, amenity second. We hope to open a small farm shop and restaurant. That's what my wife does. And some tree houses, perhaps. And then food production will be a byproduct. We'll produce some extra special, ultra free range wild beef. And and that will be tertiary to our plans. Oh, that's absolutely wonderful. Thank you for the gift of that image. Do you want anyone to join anything or to go and read anything or be part of anything that you're doing? God, that's a big question. I hadn't planned on pitching anything in particular. I urge everyone to read a book called Wilding by Isabella Tree, if they haven't already. Isabella and her husband were the pioneers of this. They inherited a 3,000-acre farm in Sussex, and farming there is very difficult on grade 5 heavy clay. So they decided to do it totally differently, and they have really blazed the trail for, for this wilder farming approach, I would say. Wonderful. Absolutely love it. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you. I feel very honoured to have been asked. Much appreciated. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Sustain This with Vivo Barefoot. It was such a joy to speak with Ben. I had the pleasure of being able to socially distance record this podcast from his property in Somerset. He's doing some incredible things with rewilding and restoring nature to the area there. Such an inspiration. You know the deal. If you like the podcast, please give us a rating or leave us a comment wherever you're listening. And remember, if you have any questions or suggestions for future guests, we want to know. That's it for now. See you next week.